And again, you're listening to Community Matters. We spoke with State Assemblyman Andy Goodell on his thoughts on the last legislative session, as well as the one scheduled for June 30th. We welcome State Assemblyman Andy Goodell back to the WRFA studio today. So how are you doing? It's uh, great to be here. Great. I, I appreciate it. When I put out this invitation for to have you come in and also State Senator George Borrello, uh, we were going to just talk about the state legislative session that had been, that had just ended. And uh, at the time, I didn't realize that you both would be headed back to Albany a lot sooner than we anticipated. But before we get to that, I just I do want to talk about this last uh, this most recent legislative session that ended and get your thoughts on how you think it went. Well, um, my my focus has always been what can we do to make New York State more competitive so we can have a stronger economy, so we can have more family sustaining jobs so we can have lower crime in our communities, safer neighborhoods. Um, and uh, how do we respond when we see inflation you know, going beyond 40-year highs? And so that's always been my focus. And unfortunately, that's not the same focus that my urban Democrat colleagues have. And so for them, their focus is how do we help illegal immigrants uh, how do we help inmates? Um, how do we reduce the number of people behind bars? And uh, how do we uh, keep the poor poor? And they might not characterize it quite that way, of course. Um, and, but you see that in a lot of the legislation. So as an example, um, you saw uh, in this legislative session, uh, legislation that uh, would make it basically eliminate parole. Um, the concept of parole is that uh, you're let out early, but you're under tight supervision. And if you screw up while you're out under supervision, you go back to prison. Well, they eliminated the right to have someone go back to prison once they're released on parole. So it has the same effect as early release. Um, everyone's been very, very concerned about the explosion in crime. And of course, we've been urging uh, Senator Brello and I that judges have judicial discretion, that they be allowed to consider the dangerousness of the individual. Our legislation didn't go forward. Uh, and as a result, uh, even though everyone's talking about gun violence, if you have somebody that holds up uh, a store with a gun or assaults somebody with a gun, doesn't shoot and kill them, but you know, has a gun in their possession, they're released on the equivalent of a traffic ticket. Uh, and you've seen crime just explode across New York State uh, as a result of the elimination of bail and the elimination of the right or the ability of a judge to hold a dangerous criminal and get them off the street right away when they're arrested. And then compounding that, you've seen a number of very liberal district attorneys, thankfully not here in Chautauqua County, but in New York City where they actually run and a platform of which crimes they will not prosecute. It's unbelievable what, what they've done, and we've seen crime explode. Of course, we've also seen uh, an explosion in inflation in the last few years. And most of us understand that inflation occurs as a result of supply and demand. If you have a shortage of supply, the price goes up, and that contributes to inflation. And so one of the areas that's driving inflation, of course, is our gas prices, right, and our energy prices. And you look at the policies that New York State and the federal government have implemented, and it's all aimed at restricting supply. 
one of the first things that President Biden did is he uh, stopped the Keystone Pipeline, right, that would bring uh, raw oil, if you will, you know, uh, to the United States to be refined. He blocked um, natural gas and gasoline drilling, oil drilling on federal lands. He's now moved back away from that. And he made it very clear that he was going to do everything he could to put the oil and gas industry out of business. So having restricted the supply and done so intentionally and aggressively, he almost seems surprised when we see gas prices going up. Well, that's what happens when you restrict supply and you still have a strong demand. In New York State, we've done the same on natural gas. Um, uh, in Chautauqua County, as you know, we have about 5,000 wells that have been fracked. Those of us who live in this county know that we're not in an environmental disaster. It can be done carefully and safely. We've proven that. Yet New York State has banned um, all major hydrofracking throughout the southern tier. Not only does that hurt us financially, but it results in higher uh, gas prices. Um, we've seen utilities applying now for double-digit price increases. Double digits. Why? Because New York State has blocked new generating plants while at the same time directing that the demand for electricity go up by, for example, this year passing legislation that would um, require all school buses to be powered by electricity. And um, as you know, I, I voted against that, debated against that, because a lot of the electricity for the southern tier comes from a coal plant in Pennsylvania. It doesn't make sense to me to convert all of our school buses to ultimately running on coal. It doesn't make environmental sense. And the cost of each bus, by the way, is $100,000 to $150,000 a piece more expensive than a bus running on the world's cleanest diesel engines made here in Jamestown, New York at Cummins. So it's been very frustrating with a very different perspective from our urban colleagues. And I suspect we're going to continue to see that as we address issues like abortion, like gun control, uh, which, of course, are, are serious issues and uh, on the front pages because of the recent Supreme Court decisions. On the budget, uh, on the negative side, New York State continues to borrow an incredible amount of money. I vote every year against that borrowing. But um, New York has some of the highest debt in the nation. That's very important to us because when the Federal Reserve just raised the interest rate by a quarter of a percent and told everyone they planned to do it more and more, the cost to the residents of the state of New York for carrying that debt is going up dramatically. And so in this year's budget, we had $8 billion in debt payments. And that's with a rate of interest that's the lowest in you know, 50 years, when that rate goes up, so will the, the bill to the taxpayers. So that's very dangerous. Um, of course, we had a lot of money coming in from the federal government. I would have directed that money to pay off the unemployment expenses that our companies incurred. Um, there's over $8 billion in debt in the unemployment system. I would use the federal funds like most states did to pay that debt off. Instead, they used it to spend uh, on more and more programs, social programs. One of the biggest increases in the budget was for affordable housing. Now, we all want affordable housing, so, and politicians are adept at using 
phrases to hide what they're really doing. Affordable housing doesn't mean your cost of housing goes down. What it means is we're going to provide government-assisted housing, low-income housing, in the urban areas. And the amount they were talking about was in the range of $8 billion. So rather than using $8 billion to help all of our employers keep their costs down, we're using $8 billion to build free housing for people who aren't working. Now, the reason we have such a housing crisis, particularly in our urban areas, is because the legislature a couple years ago implemented a series of actions that basically destroyed or seriously, seriously hurt all the small landlords. Uh, they started out by making a, the eviction process very lengthy and expensive. They limited the amount of, um, of security deposit you had. Then they went for two years with no rent payments. And then the legislature, having given a two-year moratorium on rent payments, turned around and imposes new obligations on landlords to maintain their property. So you see the whole process exploding and costing taxpayers money. On the positive side, I want to get back to there, um, we did maintain level funding for our CHIPS program, which is really important upstate. We were successful in restoring a lot of agricultural funding for Cornell Cooperative Extension, Integrated Pest Management, and a lot of programs that are really important here in Chautauqua County. Um, I and Senator Borello support um, a legislation that will actually give taxpayers a tax refund of about $2 billion this year. Um, that's helpful, and of course I'd like to see that permanent. Well, I'd like to see a permanent tax cut, so the, you know, the refund is a little gimmicky, but I'd rather just see that we weren't charging you $2 billion in the first place and let you keep your own money in your own pocket to use as you want. But uh, those were some of the positive aspects of the budget. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, I always liken that. Asking you one question, I'm going to get all my information in one shot. So you, uh, my next question was about, you know, was there anything that you felt was positive, which you, you did address that. So, I mean, in terms of bills, you've talked about a couple bills that you voted for or voted against. Was there something that you particularly would have like to have seen passed in this last session that maybe did not get passed? Yeah, uh, Senator Brello and I are co-sponsoring a number of bills that I think would be very, very helpful for, for Chautauqua County and for the state of New York. As I mentioned, one of those uh, restores the discretion of judges to set bail. Um, our bill models the federal approach to bail, which means that a judge has discretion, can consider the seriousness of the crime, can consider the background of the defendant, the likelihood they'll flee, and the likelihood they'll show up, and use all those factors. That system has been used very, very successfully nationwide, and it's something we need to do here in New York State. So that's one bill I was disappointed didn't move forward. Um, on a local level, I have a couple of bills that I hope will go through next year. One was a bill requested by the city of Jamestown for speed cameras in school zones. Um, I rewrote that bill. It's co-sponsored in the Senate by uh, Senator Brello, but we rewrote it because earlier demonstration programs in other communities had a lot of serious due process issues. So working with the mayor and the city council, we addressed all those. Because our bill addresses all the issues that have been raised, and is not their model, 
the Democrat majority has been hesitant to move it. On a, on a smaller level, um, we have a bill that would have both city judges elected. Um, people don't realize right now we have two full-time city court judges, one who's elected and one who's appointed. Well, it was a mis I mean, I, and they're great judges. Both of them are great judges. Uh, um, we used to have the appointed judge just part-time, which is why he was appointed. And when the, the state legislature made that second judge full-time, they forgot to switch it over to being elected. So I'm urging that the legislature switch that over so they're both elected. That change, by the way, wouldn't take effect until after the current judge's term, but it puts them on the same uh, footing. Um, I have a number of welfare reform bills that I think would really, really help people get out of poverty. And um, one of the things that happens, uh, and it's unintentional, but it's very, very serious, is that you have a poverty program that helps someone until they reach a certain income threshold, whether it's 100% or 133% of poverty or 200% of poverty. And then the financial assistance ends. So what happens is when someone who's in poverty gets a part-time job and they have an opportunity to make it full-time or a salary increase, and they get close to that threshold, they can't afford to work more. Because if they earn another dollar and go over that threshold, they'll lose their food stamps, or they'll lose their home energy assistance, or they'll lose you know, Medicaid coverage. And so I've introduced legislation to address what's called the fiscal cliff, to make it easier for people to leave welfare. And, it, and from my perspective, our objective ought to do everything we can to help people move forward and not trap them. Another area of great concern to me is that right now, New York State actually pays people who are in poverty not to get married, not to live together. And we know from the data that kids that grow up in a single parent household have many, many more challenges than those kids that grow up with two parents. And it's really important to have a father figure for young boys and girls growing up so they can see you know, how a, a united family can work together. But here's what the welfare system says. The welfare system says, if you don't get to married and you have a child out of wedlock, well, let's say one child, well, the father would pay 17% of their income. The rest of the income we don't consider under welfare at all. Whereas if you're married, we consider, of course, all the father's income and all the mother's income in determining welfare eligibility. So people who are right on the edge of poverty, they know this, of course. They know if they get married, the whole equation changes. So we use taxpayer money to pay people not to be together. And the societal ramifications are horrific. So I've introduced or drafted legislation that says, whether you get married or not is your decision. How we treat you in terms of your finances and your obligations on the taxpayers is our decision. And so the legislation I've drafted would say, we're gonna treat all the father's income as though they were married using the same formula as if they were married, so it doesn't make any financial sense. We're not paying people to stay separated. We're not paying to break up families. Instead, you know, we're value neutral, if you will, on that. 
So there's a number of uh, proposals on welfare that I'd love to see move forward, which I think would do a tremendous uh, help, would be a tremendous help for those who are on welfare. Mm-hmm. Going back to the um, the resolution that you and Senator Borrello had carried for the city of Jamestown, so that did not pass. Is that something that you think will come up again next session? Absolutely. And uh, interestingly, I, I raised that on the floor of the assembly, and apparently there uh, were a number of people in Jamestown who happened to see it because the assembly uh, sessions are broadcast. And the uh, ranking member on one of those committees came up to me and said, hey, I got calls from your district about this. And he said, we'll make sure it goes forward next year. And so certainly on the judges, uh, I, I've already gotten assurances from my Democrat colleagues they'll move that bill. Um, I've gotten assurances from the ranker on transportation that they will uh, look carefully at our school zone uh, bill as well. So yes, I think those will go forward. It sometimes takes a while before they think it's their idea and then it moves forward. Right. Uh, going back to our, our uh Previously, I mentioned in in this interview is that we're we're talking on Monday. So when this airs on Thursday, you will be back in Albany, presumably you and State Senator for a special session. Uh, at this point in time, we don't know if you will have a bill before then from the governor. But uh, what are your comments about this special session that's supposed to happen on the thirtieth? And from what we understand, the agenda is going to be solely to deal with the ramifications of the uh, U.S. Supreme Court ruling against the state last Thursday on the concealed gun weapon. Right. So as you know, right after the Supreme Court rendered its decision on uh, concealed carry, New York's concealed carry law, and held it was unconstitutional, almost immediately, Governor Hochul called for a special legislative session two days after the primary. Now, if there's anyone out there who doesn't think that's political, let me dissuade you and let you know that when a governor facing a primary calls for a special legislative session that occurs just after the primary without releasing any details over what she is proposing, without any bill language to be evaluated or critiqued, it is 100% political and 0% policy. As of this morning, there is no bill draft available whatsoever for any legislators or members of the public to look at, evaluate, or comment on. So here we're meeting in three days in a special session, and we don't even know the outline of any of her proposals. And uh, so by noon, I'll be there in Albany, making the trip, and, um, and once again, uh, without any notice, any opportunity for hearings, any opportunity for public input, we will be addressing a bill that is presented at the very last minute. And that is exactly the opposite of the way government should operate, right? Now, this governor, Governor Hochul, in case I forget what her name is, Governor Hochul has been running around the state saying, I'm all about transparency. This is going to be the most transparent, open government you've ever seen. We're out there to welcome public comment. Really? 
Because here's exhibit A, you're calling a special legislative session on a very important issue, and you haven't disclosed even an outline of what you're proposing. Zero transparency, zero opportunity for public comment, zero opportunity for legislators to even review the language because that hasn't been made available to us. So I'm very, very disappointed. With regard to the Supreme Court decision, um, I actually read it, and it's online, and I would encourage anyone who's interested to read it. It's a little bit long, like about 135 pages, but, but what the Supreme Court said is the Second Amendment gives you a constitutional right to, to bear arms. And they, they said the word bear means carry. That's what bear means. And so the U.S. Supreme Court said there are 43 states in this country which state that you are presumptively eligible to carry a gun outside your home. There's seven states, including New York, where it starts with the opposite presumption. So in New York, uh, you can get a valid permit to have a gun, a pistol permit. Um, that pistol permit you can take to target practice or hunting. But in New York, you can't generally carry that gun with you unless you show special circumstances that are unique and different than anyone else. And that, and only that, gives you, when I say anyone else, anyone else in the general public, that puts a burden on anyone who wants to carry a gun for public safety or defense. So let me give you an example. Let's say you work second shift. Let's say the neighborhood you live in is very dangerous. You want to carry a gun to protect yourself when you walk in the middle of the night through that neighborhood um, to take the subway or a bus or whatever. Because the danger to you is the same as the danger to everyone else in that neighborhood who's out that time of night, you can't get a permit in New York State. And that was a question asked by the Supreme Court and that was the answer given by New York State. Um, so what the Supreme Court said is, no, when it comes to a constitutional right, the state has to show why you shouldn't be able to get a permit. It's not the obligation of the individual applying to have that burden. Now, the court was also very, very clear. Their decision only relates to where licensed permitted, permitted people can carry. It did not deal with the standards on granting the permit in the first place. And so the court was absolutely clear. We are only talking about law-abiding residents who meet all the permitting requirements, all the background checks, all the mental health checks. We are only talking about the people that the state would give a permit to anyway to have a gun in their home. All we're saying is, if they meet all your criteria to have a gun in their home or a gun for target practicing or a gun for hunting, you can't bar them from carrying that gun outside their home unless you have a good reason, unless the state has a good reason to bar them. So the dissent uh, cited all the horrific statistics about gun violence. And gun violence is a very serious issue. And I'm, I'm hoping at some point 
will start focusing on the underlining causes of the violence. Um, but uh, Judge Alito point out, 60% um, roughly of gun deaths are suicide. And as Judge Alito said, allowing someone to take a pistol outside their house, a licensed law-abiding individual, is not gonna increase suicides. It's not that someone is gonna say, oh, now I can commit suicide outside. It doesn't have any impact on that. Um, they talked about the mass shootings that have dissented. And Alito said, wait, those mass shootings, someone who's intent on killing as many people as possible, they're violating every law in the books already. Saying that a law-abiding citizen can carry a, a, a handgun outside their home isn't going to create more mass shootings. And one of the mass shootings that was pointed out by the dissent, of course, was the one in Buffalo. And Judge Alito said, obviously, New York law didn't stop that one. And then when you look at the gun data on mass shootings, a substantial number of them commit suicide, and a substantial number know that they're going to be killed during an attack, right, by law enforcement response, and the rest of them know they're going to spend the rest of their natural life in prison. So these are not people who are law-abiding. And so the frustration that I and many others have is while we're focusing on guns, we're not focusing on how do we stop these events from occurring in the first place? How do we strengthen the mental health background? New York State, over the past, as you know, 15 years, has done everything it can to close down all of its mental health institutions. Gwanda, for example, right, used to be a mental health facility, virtually shut down. And New York State has shut down uh, literally a dozen or so of its prisons. Well. If you shut down all your mental health facilities and, and you shut down all your prisons and you put all those people who are violent and dangerous and mentally ill on the streets, it's no surprise that you have an uptick in dangerous people who are committing dangerous crimes. So we need to re-examine the background. Our Raise the Age legislation, for example, is another situation. Uh, prior to the change, if you were under 18, a judge could grant you youthful offender status. You're entitled to it once. You could get it on a second time on a discretionary basis, and that enabled the judge to treat um, youthful offenders differently than adults. The legislature, the Democrats in the urban areas, pushed through legislation to require everyone under the age of 21 to be treated as a non-criminal in family court. And as one of my colleagues pointed out, this is the gang recruitment bill. Because if you want to do a gang hit, you get somebody under 21 to pull the trigger. Because if they pull the trigger, they're not treated as an adult under the raise the age. Or they're caught selling drugs, they're not treated as an adult. And so they end up with no criminal record and virtually no imprisonment whatsoever. And sure enough, we've seen an explosion in crime involving young people. So I'm just saying, look, everyone understands that this gun violence is very, very serious, especially in our urban areas. The dissent pointed out in that Supreme Court case that 89.9% .9 of gun violence occurs in urban areas. Thankfully, I represent Chautauqua County where we have a relatively small amount of gun violence. 
We recognize it's a very, very serious issue. But the focus has to be on how do we identify people who are likely to commit these types of violent acts, who are not law-abiding to begin with, and what effective interventions can we take? And clearly, um, just giving them an appearance ticket when they show up banishing a gun and a robbery and letting them walk within minutes after they've been arrested, that's the wrong approach. I think a better approach is to assess jail, or assess bail, have them immediately spend some time in jail so they can think about what the heck is going on, move strongly on our anti-gang measures, right? Recognize that a 21, or someone who's just a couple days before their 21st birthday, who's a, a gang hitman, is not an innocent child. And focus on strengthening the mental health uh, services that we have. That, I think, will yield bigger dividends in the long run. Hmm. Well, uh, Assemblyman Goodell, we, we talked about a lot of things. I was going to ask you some of the things maybe that you would like to see come forward with legislation. You provided fine examples there of what you would like to see maybe come out of a special session. And I was going to ask a question. Can legislators, even though the governor's calling is, can legislators propose their own legislation or is that off the table because of how the session was brought in? Uh, no, legislators can propose amendments. Uh, they're called hostile amendments, um, and uh, and of course one reason why the governor is not providing us with any language, I mean here we're we're just a couple of days away from a special session. We still don't have a bill available. We have absolutely no language, not even an outline. One reason why is because as soon as the governor proposes the legislation, we can propose amendments. And uh, we will obviously uh, be reviewing whatever the governor proposes whenever it becomes available. And certainly, if there's an opportunity to amend it, to make it better, or to uh, change it, uh, I'm all in. And again, our mission is, is to curb gun violence, of course. The discussion is what's the best way to do it, as you know. Uh, gun violence now accounts for more teenage deaths than car accidents, first time in 60 years. But the irony to me is we don't ban cars, even though they're the leading cause of accidental deaths for young kids for 60 years. We focus on how to make them safer, right? We focus on driver education. We focus on licensing. We focus on having seat belts and airbags. We don't ban cars just because, say, you know, people are killed in cars. We do everything we can to minimize it. We should use the same approach when it comes to gun violence. Instead of banning all guns, we should look at how can we make guns uh, safer in terms of who has them, the training background, the uh, mental health background, you know, the safe use background. And here in Chautauqua County, I'll lay odds that the number of rifles per resident is probably hundreds of times higher than in New York City, yet we have virtually no um, deaths from rifles. Why? Because everyone goes through a training course on rifles, right? Many of us grew up in uh, urban areas. Our parents taught us hunting safety. Uh, my dad, you know, it didn't matter if we were just carrying a BB gun. Well, actually, that's all we had was a BB gun. We didn't even have a 22. But it didn't matter. 
You never allowed that barrel to be pointed at anyone, ever. You know, and we were taught gun safety and we were taught about responsible use. Um, and if you want a pistol permit here in Chautauqua County, you do go through a background check. You do have to get people to vouch for you. Uh, you do have to have training. That's the approach that we need to do and we need to do it recognizing that gun laws apply to law-abiding residents. You don't need to tell a mass shooter that what they're doing is illegal. They already know. And so when you look at mass shootings, the weapons they used were illegal. Their possession was typically illegal. They absolutely knew what they were doing was illegal. A substantial portion of them are suicidal. So there isn't any you know, law that they're going to follow. And adding one more law that they break, instead of breaking you know, 10 or 15, they break 16 or 17. I mean, it, it just isn't the right solution. So we need to focus on how do we keep guns out of the hands of criminals, recognizing that criminals don't follow the law. That's our challenge. All right. Assemblyman Goodell, thank you so much for being here with us. Always a pleasure.